from a dilapidated mobile home on rural Camino Island to the warm island breezes of the Bahamas. The legend of the Barefoot Bandits international crime spree has inspired books, movies, and countless ballads. The Barefoot Bandits in the news. Now he's stuck in prison with those bandit blues. A poor kid from a broken home, he was hell-bent on living the high life, sleeping in luxury homes, driving fancy cars, flying private airplanes, even if those luxuries weren't his for the taking. Whether he was a modern-day Robin Hood or an envious teen with no regard for his many victims, there's one thing that's undisputable. Colton Harris Moore was a smart kid from a troubled home who wasn't afraid to follow his dreams no matter the cost. It would all come to a head on a hot summer night in 2010. After nearly two years on the run, the barefoot bandit was spotted at a marina on Harbor Island in the Bahamas. Someone called out to him, hey, stop, what are you doing here? But the barefoot bandit dropped his shoes and shirt on the dock and jumped into the water. He swam out into the darkness and managed to climb onto a boat with the keys still inside. But the police were hot on his tail in a yacht of their own. They gave chase, firing at the stolen boat, disabling the engine. The bandit was cornered, but he wasn't ready to give up just yet. He took out a gun and pointed it at his own head, threatening to pull the trigger. But he decided to give himself up instead. Still barefoot, the bandit was handcuffed and taken back to shore to the police station where he was met by throngs of followers, some cheering his capture, others just trying to catch a glimpse of the poverty-stricken teen who made his dreams his reality, at least for a time. But he's not the only kid who's ever grown up with big dreams or rebelled against his troubled past. So how did he get here? Why Colton? And where is he now? I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the scene of the crime. So, Kim, I knew you were going to have fun taking this one on. The intrigue, his childhood backstory, the audacity of the case and this oh, yeah. kid, right? So the Barefoot Bandit case was huge, not only in the Pacific Northwest, but nationally, internationally. But before we get down to it, I just wanted to take a moment to thank all of our listeners for their support. Lots of praise coming our way, which feels great. <laughs> and I want to give a shout out to Jack the Skunk from our YouTube channel. He says that he thought our episode on Ted Bundy, Buried Secrets, he says it's one of the best Bundy podcasts I've heard, which is pretty high praise. That There's is. so many, yeah. you know, takes on the <laughs> Ted Bundy case. So I, I really want to thank Jack the Skunk for that. And we also appreciate that if you haven't already, it would be just lovely if you guys would go to iTunes and give us a five-star review. That would be fabulous. And speaking of really cool feedback we've gotten, I think that this is even more special because in the episode Eyes of Evil, we talked to, it was an exclusive interview with Dr. Randall Nazawa. Now, Kim, remind us, he was a survivor. Yeah, he was shot in the face, shot in his one good eye, which made him completely blind, and he barely survived. And he says this to us. This is after the episode aired. He said, hello, Carolyn. Thank you and Kim for an incredible piece. Your tandem back and forth was insightful, accurate, entertaining, and informative. 
your piece was on point and descriptive of human psychology and what we humans are capable of. You know, he just goes on and on to talk about that relationship. But I mean, it's, that's that's like the highest of high praises when you take a person's a victim story and give them that platform to share it and his response was amazing. He would go on to say the production and your scene of the crime is extraordinary. So, I mean, he's gushing a little bit, but anyway, we'll take it. Um, but getting back to the case, the Barefoot Bandit, a huge investigation in the Pacific Northwest. So yeah, take it away. and talk about the psychology of it all. We're really going to get into that. He grew up in a home marked by instability, loss, and alcohol abuse. That's how one psychologist would describe Colton Harris Moore for a court. He was neglected by the schools, the police, his family. And according to Colton's aunt, his mother was an alcoholic, a mean drunk, who would break Colton's toys as a form of punishment when he was growing up. When Colton was just four or five years old, his father left the family and his mom remarried. But according to court records, her new husband was a heroin addict. And while Colton and his stepfather actually seemed to get along okay, his stepdad died when he was just 10 years old, and they believe it was connected with his heroin abuse. Soon after, there was another boyfriend who moved in with the family, and that's when the calls to Child Protective Services started. They were called to the home on at least 12 different occasions, one time taking Colton out of his mother's care for several days. In May of 2003, when Colton was just 12 years old, his father apparently made a short and violent reappearance in his life. Court records show that Gordon Moore allegedly pushed his son to the ground, then grabbed him by the throat. He ran off into the woods as Colton called 911. His father was eventually arrested, and that was apparently the very last time that Colton ever had any contact with him. Now, is Colton an only child? I believe so. I mean, as far as I know, I've never heard of any siblings. Okay, so he's basically in this alone. You know, when you have siblings, you know, you can lean on them. But it sounds like this kid is on his own. Yeah, I believe so. So after that incident with his father, though, Colton's mom reportedly blamed him. Court records show that Pam was drunk, as per usual, and she was saying things like, what are you going to do now? They've taken your father away. So putting all the blame on her son for calling 911. Six months after that incident, Colton was arrested for the first time. He and three other boys were breaking into the middle school that they attended. He ended up pleading guilty in that case to using a butane torch lighter to burn a hole into a school window. And then he took off with a laptop and some blank CDs. And for that, because he was a juvenile, he was sentenced to six months of supervision and 56 hours of community service. And this is kind of interesting because that's kind of a creative way to get into a school. You know, I, I mean, I bet you he was kind of like the ringleader on that one. Like, OK, why don't we do knowing what we'll know about his history? I mean, normally kids would be like, uh, I don't know, let's break a window or but right? using a butane torch. I mean, that kind of takes some planning. I mean, does that make sense? It does. And and something interesting that we'll get into a little bit later on is is Colton talks about people being aware of what they're capable of. He says so many people are capable of so much more than they're aware of. And I think this goes to show that he was aware from a pretty early age of what he was capable of. <laughs> definitely. And he wasn't afraid to, to carry it out. So in a 2004 report, when Colton would have been about 13, his probation officer wrote about him, Colton and his mother share a tumultuous relationship. Colton's mother reported to me how he is violent at home on a near daily basis. He recently broke the telephone in order to prevent her from calling the police. 
She then showed me a mark on her forearm of how he had bit her and reported a recent incident where Colton went off after her with a boat oar. So mom now says that Colton is abusing her. And in that same report, his mother reported how Colton was on medication. And she said that he was complying with uh, the medication the doctors had given him and that his behavior was actually getting less hostile as a result. So she felt like the medication might have been working. But his aunt would later say that it made him so sleepy all the time that he just he slept constantly and, and she didn't feel like it agreed with him. And I don't think Colton really enjoyed it either. Well, and I think even though I don't know all the particulars of the case, just that description of the chaos in the house where, you know, he's biting her, you know, she's going after him. Like it really speaks to just the level of instability and just craziness. And And there was also this level of financial instability as well. Yeah. And you throw alcohol and drugs into the mix. Oh, yeah. You've got a really toxic environment. And it's in many cases, you know, they do try to throw drugs at at kids in the form of whatever medication to kind of calm him down. And and I don't want to say that's bad because, you know, people have to do what, what works for them. But I think in this particular case, when you look at the history, you know, he's he's lashing out. He's pissed off at his situation. So, yeah, it's hard to blame him or think that he has some mental instability because he is unhappy and angry in his situation. Who wouldn't be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in 2007, Colton was about 17 at this time. His mother wrote a letter to the court saying, Colt has had mental problems since about the age of two. I have tried for years to get him help. He tended to beat his head on the wall when he was a toddler. What do you think about that? It's very, very sad. So beating your head on the wall for very minor children can have several reasons. It can be mental instability. That can be one of the reasons. Um, Another reason can be frustration because toddlers don't know how to express themselves. They don't know how to get it out. And when you think about people who do cutting, Mm -hmm. it's because they have some kind of invisible pain that they can't deal with. And so they give themselves a physical pain so they can at least identify where the pain is coming from. They feel a release with it, too. There's a release. And so this is a similar form of Mm self-harm that you often see in very young children. I don't know if that's for sure the case with Colton, Mm because there can be several reasons why children do that kind of behavior. But that is one of them. But I'm not seeing, uh, you know, I'm not hearing, and I, and I don't know the mom, and I don't want to do that mom judgment thing whatsoever. I just, it feels like she sounds like she's just in over her head, frustrated. I'm sure. I mean, I don't think that she had any nefarious motives. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think she ever intended to be a bad mom or to hurt her son. I, I No, not at all. But I mm-hmm. do think there is a level of neglect there. And, you know, alcoholism and drug abuse, as we mentioned, obviously can contribute to that. Yeah. So Colton was given a court-ordered psychological evaluation at this point in which a doctor notes that he has a long history of psychiatric and behavioral difficulties and that he had been prescribed a wide range of psychiatric medications. He had been on antidepressants, stimulant medications, mood stabilizers, even an antipsychotic medication, but it never really seemed to be a permanent fix. Colton's attorney at the time argued that the assessment proved he wasn't dangerous. He wasn't violent. She noted that all of his crimes that he had committed were basically property crimes and that in her dealings with Colton, he was always very courteous, very bright. She said he seemed to be, quote, on the ball. In high school, Colton already knew he wanted to be a pilot. 
He told his attorney that he didn't have much schooling and he was sure that he would not be able to join the Navy to learn how to be a pilot. So stealing airplanes was just the only avenue that was left for him. He was only 17 years old when he faced 23 criminal charges. This was for a series of break-ins and thefts on Camado Island and nearby in the town of Stanwood. Many of them vacation homes, places that Colton probably wished that he had grown up. And by hiding in these homes and sometimes hiding in the woods, he was able to evade police for months. Colton's mom later recalled that he would pop up once in a while during his time on the run. One morning he came and uh, I figured he was hungry, like he was always hungry. And he loves my breakfasts because I make homemade hash browns that I grate up myself. And uh, so I made him a big breakfast and we sat there and talked. And after he left, the cops came and uh, they asked me the same old question, have you seen Colt? I said, yeah, we just sat down and had breakfast together. God, did they get mad. And, uh, well, you know that that's harboring? And I said, he's my kid. If he's hungry, I'm going to feed him. I don't care if it's harboring him or not. So would you feed your kid if he if he had 23 counts against him, was on the run from police, would you give him breakfast and of, send him on his way? Of course I would. I mean, I... Actually, I wouldn't necessarily send him on his way, but I, of course, would feed my kid. And just the way that she describes it, it's like the it's making my heart melt for her than when we first started this episode. Right. Because I don't, I don't know. It seems like she has all intentions of being a good mom. Yeah. She wants to be a good mom. Yeah. That's that that one snippet was like I was missing that in that he's banging his head against the wall because as a two year old, when you think about that, your heart just freaking melt. So I'm glad that we have that cut here. Yeah. So when he was eventually captured, he was able to negotiate a plea deal that included just three counts of burglary. It started with 23. They were able to work it down to three because he still was a juvenile at this point, 17 years old. Now, Colton's aunt, Sandra Putman, submitted a letter to the court, as read by our technical producer, Shauna. I am Colton Harris Moore's aunt. I used to babysit him for his mom and dad his first year of life. I love that boy like one of my own kids. But as the years went by, I lost contact with him and his mother. We have, in the last one and a half years, been in contact with each other. I have come to know Colt again and my sister. I have heard a lot of stories that have happened to the two of them, from not having much money for food and bills to being picked up by a policeman on the road in front of his house at eight years old. The policeman put the bike in the trunk of his car and brought Colt home to his mom. The police asked his mom where Colt got the brand new bike when they were so broke. Well, his mom scraped together and saved money to buy that bike for his birthday. He was so happy and proud of that bike, and then to have that policeman downgrade him and hurt his feelings and accuse him of stealing it. When I heard about his trouble all his life, I asked his mom why. She told me she asked the school many times a year to get help and to even hold him back a year. They refused. So with the help of that letter, he was able to get the 23 counts down to three counts in his plea deal. He was sentenced to three years in juvenile detention. But Colton still had not learned his lesson because in April of 2008, 
he snuck out of the group home for juveniles that he was in in Renton. Detective Robert Onishi is with the Renton Police Department. There was a employee who had done a scheduled bed check at about 9.37 at night, and one of his charges to check on was Mr. Harris, and he discovered at that point that Harris was missing, his bedroom window was open, the screen that was on the window had been removed there. And so he then uh, called us up, and one of our officers got there about 10.07 or so and took the report of this escape. And that was the beginning of what would become a two-year chase and an international manhunt. During his time on the run, Colton's aunt says that he would call her every month or so just to let her know that he was okay. And she'd always plead with him to turn himself in. She said his reply was always the same. He would just say he wasn't ready to stop yet. In July of 2008, when he was just about 18 years old, Colton crashed a stolen car into Elgar Bay Grocery Store. There was a backpack found in that car, and it contained a stolen digital camera. On the camera is that now infamous self-portrait of Colton, where he he looks like he's kind of lounging with that goofy half-smile, and it's an image that would just spread through media all over the world as they're looking for this kid. In March of 2009, the cops were starting to get really frustrated. It had been about nine months. They still couldn't find this guy. So the Island County... Can, can I ask you yeah. a quick question? Who is who is investigating this at the time? Like where... Is it one specific sheriff's office? Because it's all... It sounds like it's right. all over the map. So it is. It's in several different jurisdictions. And um, I believe at this point, it's still kind of confined to the state of Washington, but that's not going to last very long. And how old was he when he, when he jumped out that window and took off? 18. Or, he was 18. About. Okay. I mean, so I don't know his exact exact birth date, but he was about 18 years okay, old. Yeah. yeah. The cops were getting really frustrated because it had been like nine months and he just kept slipping through their fingers. So the Island County Sheriff's Office in March of 2009 issues a warrant for his arrest on adult charges on the charge of flight to avoid prosecution. And this is where his crime spree really starts to ramp up. In June of 2009, a deputy patrol car is broken into on Camino Island. A rifle and other equipment is stolen. A fire station in Camino Island is also burglarized in that same time period. September of 2009, an island market on Orcas Island is burglarized, an ATM vandalized. They would later find Colton's blood at the scene. That's one of the crimes that he is charged with. In September of 2009, a boat was stolen from Orcas Island. San Juan County Sheriff's deputies say that Colton Harris-Moore is suspected in dozens of island burglaries by that point. Two airplane thefts, a boat theft, and this is where they think he's headed to Canada. So real quick, we got to talk about the airplane thefts and the boat theft. Okay. Because the way that he goes about stealing these things is, is kind of ridiculously simple. Basically, a lot of times, apparently, and I didn't realize this, it's really not, you don't really have to like break into an airplane. Mm-hmm. They're sort of open. People think that nobody's who's going to steal my plane, right? Why would I lock the, it? Again, the audacity right. of, of this kid. It just seems un, unreal that anybody would steal an airplane. So it's just not something that is typically locked up very well. And he's never taken any pilot's training, obviously. No, I mean, no from, pilot's I mean, training. He got a flight training manual, a book of how to fly an airplane. And that is the, he says, the only thing he's ever used to learn how to fly. That's incredible. And I think that this goes to why this case really took off. I mean, this kid. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, he 
is like just doing what he wants, making the sheriff's office. I mean, do we know what he did with this rifle? I mean, that's kind of scary, but we know that he's not violent. Yeah, it doesn't sound like he ever committed any kind of violent acts. I mean, it was more just he wanted to live this lifestyle to, to feel what it was like to be, you know, among the rich and famous and live in these vacation homes. And, you know, he would occasionally steal electronics like laptops and things like that from the homes, but never really anything huge. I mean, well, uh, other than an airplane. Right. But <laughs> I mean, didn't he steal an airplane from a local radio talk show host? I mean, it was a. I think setting the stage of that, that's how it It just continued to grow. Not only what he was stealing, but he was stealing. You know, if you're going to steal a radio, I mean, a, a, an airplane and, you know, do it from a radio host because they are going to just milk that for all it's worth. And I remember hearing the, about that theft. So it's it's it seems like it's it's kind of ad hoc, but also thumbing your nose at authority. Who, oh, sure. Who maybe, you know, he's like, you guys ignored me all my life and now it's my turn. Well, and when he said to his aunt, I'm not done yet. Mm-hmm. It's almost like he knew this was going to come to an end at mm-hmm. some point. He just wanted to see how, how long how he could far get he away could take with it. it. Yep. So let's remember we're in September of 2009. They think maybe he's headed to Canada. All of a sudden there is a plane stolen from Bonner's Ferry, Idaho, And they think this, again, is related to Colton Harris Moore. In October of 2009, a logger finds the plane that was stolen from Idaho, crashed into a clearing near Granite Falls, and Colton's DNA was, in fact, found in that plane. A man tracker followed some bare footprints to a makeshift camp in the woods. And somebody shot at deputies during that manhunt. They, they, they brought out the SWAT teams. They had helicopters out there because they thought, we finally got this guy. Department of Homeland Security came in. Yeah. Okay? Because they finally thought they had him. But no, he got away again. During all of this, his mom stayed largely out of the public eye. She did occasionally make really short statements when she was cornered by reporters, something like this. All I'm going to say is I'm he's safe and I'm happy and I love him and I miss him. Now, Muckle Teo Man in October of 2009 started a Colton Harris Moore Facebook fan page. Oh, my gosh. And that took off. The story of this Camino Island teen fugitive started getting even more international attention. There were tens of thousands of people who started following his exploits through this Facebook page and became fans of his. Do you know when he was titled the Barefoot Bandit and who who came up with that? You know, I don't know about who came up with it, but it was basically right after that airplane was discovered in Idaho and they followed the, the footprints to the camp. Not only did they find footprints there, but there were actually footprints at a lot of the crime scenes, and they were starting to see a pattern. <laughs> there were either footprints. The Hang 10, like, remember that, like, logo? Yeah. So, so they were... sometimes he would actually draw footprints at the crime scenes if he didn't leave any. So he just was playing with them. taunt them a he little bit, I think. He was toying them. He was toying with them. But the reason that, that he was barefoot, that they often found these footprints, is because he would often go barefoot as a child. That's how he grew up. He would play in the woods barefoot, like, every day. And so, you know, it reminds me of the wild man of Wainucci. Yes, um, I know. I was thinking that same thing as you were... This he is like was, the modern day version. Yeah, and he was using the skills that he had, even though he had a really rough childhood... You know, his intelligence. Yeah. He's using his wildlife skills, knowing how to go in the woods and take. I mean, it's not easy to, you know, sustain yourself in the woods, especially, you know, as a young person with little experience. But he did have that experience. Yeah. And not only did he sustain himself, but he managed to also keep out of the eye of the authorities, even when they were hot on his tail. 
federal prosecutors in December of 2009 secretly charged Colton with the theft of that plane in Idaho. The teen is then the focus of roughly 65 investigations involving police in two states and Canada. So Washington State, Idaho, and Canada are all now looking for this guy. And he's not done yet. So in February of 2009, a plane is stolen from Anacortes. That one's recovered on Orcas Island. Not far away, there's a grocery store that's burglarized, and somebody draws those footprints on the floor. Also in February, there is a burglary attempt at an Orcas Island hardware store. In May of 2009, there's video that captures Colton at a marina on Lopez Island just before a boat is stolen. That boat's later found just adrift offshore somewhere. Also in May, a Seattle man starts an anti-Harris Moore website trying to drum up enthusiasm for Colton's arrest. So we have both now like a fan page for Colton Harris Moore and we have the anti-Colton Harris Moore page. So which page do you think you'd be following? But they're all, I mean, it, it doesn't even matter, right? I mean, they're all giving this guy more publicity all over the world. In May of 2009, there is a bounty hunter in Everett who says he's joined the hunt and police are actually cool with him getting involved because they're having such a hard time. This is really unusual because typically police really like to keep investigations close to the chest and and not, you know, release much information because uh, they don't want it to mess up their investigation. But in this case, I mean, this guy's been on the run for over a year now and they're like, please, you want to help? We'll take it. Any help we can get. So Colton leaves a note and some cash at a veterinary clinic in Raymond in May of 2009. And he asks that the money he leaves be used to help the animals. And he signs the note, the Barefoot Bandit. So by this point, he has now accepted this moniker of Mm -hmm. the Barefoot Bandit, and he's turned himself into a sort of Robin Hood. I think he's like glorifying in it. I think that he's really, you know, leaning into it, and I can't wait to hear why. Well, in June of 2009, there is a boat stolen from southwest Washington. That one turned up in Oregon along the Columbia River. So now we're bringing in another state that's going to be looking for him. There's a car stolen during a burglary at an airport in Warrington, Oregon. Also in June of 2009, there was an anonymous donor that offered to pay Colton $50,000 if he would turn himself in. Wow. He turned it down. Wait a second. How do, how do we know that he turned it down? Is he communicating with anybody like in the press or? Is so he's checking in with his aunt monthly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would guess he's following the Facebook pages. And is he, does he have any kind of disguise or anything? Or is he just? No, he's just a kid. I mean, he's so average looking. Well, I say average looking, but he is actually a little bit of a giant. He's like 6'2", I think, and like 200 pounds at this point. So he's he's a big guy. Yeah. But not anything really unusual looking. I mean, he's he's brown haired, 19 years old. I mean, kind of average. Okay. So in June of 2009, there is some food in a car that's stolen in a burglary attempt in McMinnville, Oregon. He tried to steal a plane, actually didn't get that one. So he didn't get every plane he tried for, but he did take off with a car and some food. There's also a car stolen from an airport in Ontario, Oregon. That one was recovered a couple of days later in in Boise, Idaho. Officials then begin warning police across the country that Colton may be moving east. The trail picks up in South Dakota in Spearfish, where a car that was stolen from Wyoming is found at an airport in South Dakota. The thief left 
in another stolen car, though. So it sounds like he may have tried to steal a plane there. Maybe people are starting to hear about the barefoot bandit that's stealing small airplanes and finally locking them up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) June 18th, there's some people who come home in South Dakota to their home in Yankton, South Dakota, and find a young man naked in their home. There is some evidence that this was Colton Harris Moore. He ran, took off, and stole their car. Of course. The car that they probably just pulled up in, right? Right. So in June, also June. So this we're going on like six or eight different crimes here in like three different states in June alone. June 20th, more charges for burglary and car theft in Nebraska. June 21st, burglaries for another car theft in Iowa. And then... June 22nd, there is a car owned by the city of Otumwa, Iowa. That's stolen. There are burglaries, including one at a local airport there. June 24th, the car that was stolen in Otumwa is then found stuck in the sand near Dallas City, Illinois. July 3rd, a car stolen from Illinois is recovered. And then a Cessna plane is stolen from a locked hangar at the Monroe County Airport in Bloomington, Indiana. July 4th, the following day, the Cessna that was stolen in Indiana is found crashed off the coast of Grand Abaco Island in the Bahamas. Wow. You know, as you're reading all of these crimes that are taking place, what's really kind of striking me the most is just how lonely he must have been. He's not he doesn't have a partner in crime. You know, there's this is not like a Thelma Louis and Louis story. right? Right. He's all by himself doing these antics, which are like amazing in that he's able to pull it off. But can you imagine, like, that would, like, who is he showing off for? Like, who is he? Is he doing it for his own pleasure? Like, I I don't know enough about the kid to kind of have any kind of sense of it. But it's like, it just seems incredibly lonely. And he calls his aunt, you know, his li- a lifeline, you know, I don't yeah. know. Well, well, we'll hear from Colton in a little bit. Okay. So let's finish with his crime spree, though, because when they find that stolen plane in the Bahamas, about 1,200 miles from where it was taken, the FBI announces they now have a $10,000 reward. They unseal their criminal complaint against Colton, and it talks about all his crimes all across the country. And finally, July 11th, 2009, a guy spots Colton on a stolen boat in the harbor in the Bahamas. And he spoke right after the arrest. He says he first noticed Colton around midnight. I was the place, I was the place young man to spot him. We was on the dock, right? And he come riding in. And he, he ride back out. And they say, I was calling him for about 10 minutes and he won't answer me. And after a while he called and he come in closer. And me and him was chasing and he's telling me about he in Cuba. And he won't get to the airport. So was he a suspicious-looking character? Did you recognize him? No, he little white, goony, no little goofy young man. That's how he looked to me. A goofy young a goofy man. Young and it's kind man. of a little bit hard to understand with his accent, but I, I believe what he's saying is that um, it looked like he was trying to get to the airport because he wanted to go to Cuba is what mm-hmm. it sounds like. But in any case, basically what happened is they spot him in the harbor in a stolen boat, of course. (laughs) Of course. And they kind of like holler at him like, hey, you look familiar or something like that. And he takes off. So are they spotting him because they recognize that he's a wanted man or are they spotting him because he looks goofy and they're just trying to figure out like, what what are you doing? It's kind of not clear. Yeah. It's unclear. I think it's ironic that they would discover him if they if they're like, that's the barefoot bandit in the Bahamas when we couldn't figure it out here in the States. Right. Right. So eventually. 
essentially th- there's like several hours of a chase that happens between him and, and the police down in the Bahamas. But they do finally catch him after his arrest. He was brought back to the U.S. to face trial. And again, as in his uh, earlier case, when he was a juvenile, he pleaded guilty Now 20 years old, he was sentenced in a federal court in Seattle, and the judge in the case chose to impose the lightest sentence option under the plea deal because she said she had sympathy for the kid. I do find that the defendant's guilty plea is knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily made, that he understands the charge and the consequence of the plea. I also find that there is a factual basis based upon the documents that have been filed. I find you guilty as charged. I do think that this case is a tragedy. It's a tragedy in many ways, but it's also a triumph of the human spirit in other ways. As I've said, I've read all the documents and uh, sympathize with the defendant for the terrible upbringing that he has. As one person, I think it was your investigator, indicated, it was a mind-numbing absence of hope. Wow. Can you imagine growing up with that, a mind-numbing absence of hope? What I'm so happy about is that finally someone in a position of power is able to see him and see what he's been through. And see past his crimes. And not try to give him drugs to calm him down and not try to say he's a bad kid. He's going to have to face what he's done, but she's seeing him. And that and that to me is is like I'm sure for Colton was like, hey, you know, thank you. Yeah. You know, well, he ended up spending a little more than six years in prison. And when he came out, he said, you know, I learned a lot about life and a lot about people. You know, prison is a microcosm for society in a lot of ways. And and I didn't know that going into it. You have a lot of people that simply have never been introduced to not only the full spectrum of possibilities, but the spectrums beyond spectrums, and it's truly infinite. And most people have no idea about that. They steal cars and they're doing these things and not tapping into their maximum potential. And and it, it, it was a, a very eye-opening experience about just how few people really realize what they're capable of. And once they realize it's a possibility, do they actually believe in it? Do they believe they're capable? So it's, there's layers to it. And I think that's the secret is that not only did he see all of the possibilities of what he could be capable of, but he had faith in himself that he could carry out all of these fantasies. I mean, I think a lot of us have fantasies as children of things that, oh, I'd love to do this. And oh, wouldn't it be cool to do that? But we don't actually attempt because we don't think it's really ever going to happen. It sounds like he didn't have that barrier. Like from the beginning, he just realized that he had this almost limitless potential. Now, this was from a a recent conversation that Colton actually posted to his own YouTube channel just a few months ago. So we're going to link this to our YouTube channel, Scene of the Crime podcast on YouTube, if you'd like to hear more of it. The whole thing is like three or four hours long. So I just pulled a couple of snippets here so you could hear what he's thinking and what he's up to now. In another part of this conversation, he talks about how a lot of the stories told about him are inaccurate, either saying things that he didn't do or not giving him credit for some of his earlier crimes. (laughs) I actually don't think they know about this one, but I broke into the restaurant. I didn't go into the main part of the restaurant. There's a back door through the kitchen uh, that you can access through the outside. And I made myself spicy hot wings uh, from the freezer, Uh, but I did never ordered airplane DVDs. That's number one. 
And I haven't used a flight simulator in my life uh, to this very day. Colton says that he feels like he's a totally different person now than that troubled kid who broke into homes and stole airplanes. He wants to go legit, and he is going legit. But it's taken him years to put together some semblance of a normal life. When I got out of jail, and I'm not playing the victim, I'm really not, but I applied to 48, 48 jobs, and nobody would touch me with a 100-foot pole. And so... You know, it seems that around every corner you have some other obstacle uh, that is based on something that happened 10 or 15 years ago. For example, he has tried to get his pilot's license and he hasn't been able to because they know about his history and they want him to jump through all of these hoops. He was saying they didn't outright deny him the license, but they basically gave him so many requirements that he felt like it was insurmountable. Mm hmm. And which for him which is, is saying a lot. And and which goes back to he didn't think he'd be able to because he didn't have the grades. He'd missed a lot of school. And so he didn't think that he could go into the you know Air Force to learn how to be a pilot. And this is the same kind of thing where society is like, OK, you know, you know, we're going to make it impossible for you to do what you want to do. And, yeah. And, and he wouldn't say exactly what he's up to now in this interview. But he said it's something in the aviation industry. Mm -hmm. And he said he has several partners that he's working with and, and everybody would find out soon. What's interesting about this case to me particularly is there was a letter that I read that Colton sent to the court and he was trying to get off of parole that limited him staying inside Washington. I think this was a few years ago. So he he basically had all these opportunities to, you know, tell his story and he has a bunch of restitution that he needs to pay and they're like, "Okay." And he's like, "Hey, please, you know, if I can do this movie deal or if I could do this, I would be able to pay my restitution, kind of like what you were saying earlier, where he's trying to get his life on track, doing the right thing. This would allow him to do that. And they're saying no. But what he also said in that letter was he was talking about all the people that had influenced his life since the, these crimes that he committed, mm -hmm. all the mentors that he had access to that he would never have had access to as a young man and a child. And one of those is John Henry Brown, you know, his, his attorney. attorney. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's so it, it's so sad because that's one of the such the when you come from the wrong side of the tracks. That's one of the most important things is to have access to mentors. I don't know if you had mentors growing up, but. You're like shaking your I head. I, you know, honestly, I can't think of any. Which is sad because like you could have real mentors or you could have like superhero mentors, you know, something to well, look up Wonder to. Wonder Woman. And, well, there you go. <laughs> um, but And Pollyanna. And Pollyanna. What was, what was the red? Oh, yeah. Pollyanna really? was super smart. Really? Yeah. yeah. Pippi Longstocking Pippi Long, was my That was going to yeah, say, that, and Pippi Longstocking. Yeah. It, those were my three. Those yeah. were my three. So Wonder Woman, Pollyanna, and Pippi Longstocking. If I could be a combination of those three people, yeah. that would be my ultimate. Well, And I, Rainbow Bright, but I, let's not I, go there. I, well, and I think that had he had those mentors, not those particular ones, but as a young child and a young man, you know, who knows what he could have accomplished. I mean, you clearly know? he's a bright person. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, he could have done a lot had he had access to good schooling and good food and good nurturing and all of those things. Like we talk about nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. Clearly, his nature is to be a smart guy, is to have a lot of ideas, is to have a lot of faith in himself. But then it's like, well, what do we do with that? Right. Mm -hmm. So that's your nature. But he was nurtured or lack of nurture, I suppose, mm -hmm. in a way that led him down the wrong path. Yeah. He's only been out of prison for a few years now. Okay. And so you never know what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. But so far, it sounds like everything's going good. And I will say that he does not like the term barefoot bandit anymore, even though he did 
kind of accept that moniker along the way. Well, not only accept it, but like put it out there big time. Yeah, I think he probably realized that that's not going to do him any favors in the real world. Mm -hmm. So he now prefers to go by Colton Harris Moore and not the Barefoot Bandit. Well, what do you think about people who who commit crimes and then they're able to capitalize on, you know, write books and movie rights. And, you know, what, what do you what is your stance on that? I mean, I don't like that idea. I think that if if they do a movie deal, a book deal, whatever, like the money should go to the victims, obviously. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, do they deserve any more notoriety? Probably not. This is a tough one because he was a kid when all this started. And clearly his upbringing was so difficult I don't hold any of this against him. I feel bad for his victims and the people whose homes were broken into, even if they were vacation homes, to show up to a house and and be violated in that way Mm -hmm. is scarring. So it's really hard because I don't want to, like, totally let him off the hook for all these crimes. I'm glad that he served six years in prison. I'm glad that it sounds like he, he learned his lesson and has grown a lot. And as he said, he learned a lot in prison. He read tons of books. He read school textbooks while he was in prison and talked to a lot of people. And, you know, it sounds like did a lot of Mm self-discovery in that time. Like he used his time well. And now that he's out, he's trying to rebuild his life in a more positive way that's beneficial for society instead of a detriment. And so, I mean, I just I want to give him 100 percent like clean slate, fresh start, do Mm -hmm. your thing. So you're you'd be making him some hash browns, some homemade hash browns and eggs. If I knew how to cook, I absolutely would. (laughs) Well, would you would you send him on his way if he was your son or would you call the police? Like what I what would you do? I would probably call the police. But at the same time, I don't think my son would wind up in the this position because he does have people around him that are nurturing and loving and caring. And I mean, any kid can go off the rails, but the way that Colton went off the rails and how far he went off the rails and for how long he went off the rails, that is highly unusual. In in the interviews that he gave, did you ever find out like what he was thinking as he was doing these crimes? That's what I'm most curious about. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't really talk. He doesn't want to talk about it. Because he wants to move on. He wants to put that behind him and he doesn't even want to talk about it anymore. But the feeling that I get is that there wasn't really a long term plan. You know, he was 19 years old. He did. His brain is not fully formed. Like he can barely think from one minute to the next, no matter how smart you are. If you're not planning ahead, you know, you're only going to go so far. And I think that's what ended up happening. So where are we headed off to next week? Okay, so we're going back to the 90s. A spoiled rich kid with anger issues grows into a conniving playboy who, when faced with the end of his poser lifestyle of the rich and famous, hatches a plan to burn down his parents' warehouse that will lead to the deaths of four Seattle firefighters. Mm. All right. That's Carolyn Osorio. I'm Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. 